I'm Taz. I'm Sam. And welcome to Discovery Bible Study on Front Porch Report. This week we will be studying Ezra chapter 4. If you haven't listened to our previous podcast about Ezra chapters 1, 2, and 3, feel free to listen to them. They're available wherever podcasts are found. So without further ado, let's jump right in. We're going to start off by reading the text. So starting in Ezra chapter 4, verse 1. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the family heads and said to them, let us build with you, for we also worship your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time King Esarhaddon of Assyria brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the other heads of Israel's families answered them, you may have no part with us in building a house for our God, since we alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded. Then the people who were already in the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. They also bribed officials to act against them to frustrate their plans throughout the reign of King Cyrus of Persia and until the reign of King Darius of Persia. At the beginning of the reign of Ahasuerus, the people who were already in the land wrote an accusation against the residents of Judah and Jerusalem. During the time of King Artaxerxes of Persia, Bishlam, Mithradath, Tabil, and the rest of his colleagues wrote to King Artaxerxes. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rahum, chief deputy, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter to King Artaxerxes concerning Jerusalem as follows. From Rahum, the chief deputy, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their colleagues, the judges and magistrates from Tripolis, Persia, Echrek, Babylon, Susa, that is, the people of Elam, and the rest of the peoples whom the great and illustrious Ashurbanipal deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and the region west of the Euphrates River. This is the text of the letter that they sent him. To King Artaxerxes from your servants, the men from the region west of the Euphrates River. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came from you have returned to us in Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and evil city, finishing its walls, and repairing its foundations. Let it now be known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, duty, or land tax, and the royal revenue will suffer. Since we have taken an oath of loyalty to the king, and it is not right for us to witness his dishonor, we have sent you to or we have sent this to inform the king that a search should be made in your father's record books. In these record books, you will discover and verify that the city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and provinces. There have been revolts in it since ancient times. That is why the city was destroyed. We advise the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are finished, you will not have any possession west of the Euphrates. The king sent a reply to his chief deputy, Rahum, Shimai, the scribe, and the rest of the colleagues living in Samaria and elsewhere in the region west of the Euphrates River. Greetings. The letter you sent us has been translated and read in my presence. I issued a decree and a search was conducted. It was discovered that this city has had uprising against kings since ancient times, and there have been rebellious and revolts in it. Powerful kings have also ruled over Jerusalem, 
and exercise authority over the whole region west of the Euphrates River and tribute duty and land tax were paid to them. Therefore, issue an order for these men to stop so that the city will not be rebuilt until a further decree has been pronounced by me. See that you not neglect this matter, otherwise the damage will increase and the royal interests will suffer. As soon as the text of Artaxerxes' letter was read to Rehum, Shimshai the scribe, and their colleagues, they immediately went to the Jews in Jerusalem and forcibly stopped them. Now the construction of God's house in Jerusalem had stopped and remained at a standstill until the second year of the reign of King Darius of Persia. So to start off, let's add a little bit of context and just talk about what exactly happened in this passage. Um, so if we can remember from chapters 1, 2, and 3, King Cyrus of Persia has allowed the Jews in exile to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple specifically. And they have reached Jerusalem, they have started to rebuild the temple, and we have read that in chapters 1, 2, and 3, that the foundation had finally been laid. The temple itself had not been, had been finished, but the foundation had been laid. And now they're reaching to the point where uh, people are starting to notice. Yeah, and we've talked in previous episodes about what the reaction of people would be to the rebuilding of this temple and the fact that they were doing so in such a visible way. And here we really start to get to see what that reaction looks like. And what we see end up happening is that the people who are locally in this area at first seem to offer some conciliation, though they are immediately identified as enemies in verse one. But they seem to be conciliatory, saying, let us build with you because we also worship your God. And then after they are rebuffed from that attempt, they very quickly uh, show their true colors and start to move towards harassing them locally, as well as going up the chain, going over the Israelites' heads and trying to get official condemnation for the task that they are doing. And initially, in this chapter, they succeed. And this King Artaxerxes seems very willing to assist them in their task of preventing the Jews from doing what they're doing, which is interesting because if you'll remember, the very reason the Jews are in this situation in the first place is because King Cyrus was willing to let them go and rebuild in the first place. So there's a reversal coming from above, which we'll talk about this a little bit later, kind of demonstrates the the fickleness of having to rely on human sources for your ability to fulfill your own goals or desires or even to fulfill God's will. So uh, as we do with the Discovery Bible study, uh, we're going to ask a series of questions in regards to the text. We're going to read the text uh, as we have. And now uh, first question is, what does this passage say about people? And Taz, you pointed out a great point, and I'm not going to steal it uh, about the fickleness of, of people. So I'm going to let you can expound upon that one in a moment. But for me, the one that I see here is the, the inner drive of people 
right? Um, because you notice how they approached King Artaxerxes, they being the uh, opponents of Israel in this moment, or those who are opposing the rebuilding of Jerusalem. They approached him from a very logical standpoint, um, and that is, hey, man, this is going to affect your bottom line, essentially. And so people, as awful as this is, people are very financially driven. Even in today's society, we can see as Christians uh, in our Christian worldview, we can see that there is a lot of financial motivation for people to do specific things, whether it's uh, pursue specific careers, whether it's go for specific education, however that looks. You know, there are typically financial incentives for people to do that. And we as Christians need to look and understand that while having financial security may be a nice thing, while having a good career may be a nice thing, our ultimate security shouldn't be in finances, right? And how they approach this king is they are saying, hey, man, you need to put your security in your financial well-being. And hey, this is a rebellious city. And it, I mean, you're not going to get money essentially. And he's so concerned with his financial well-being that he's like, nope, we're going we're gonna to put an end to this. And so we from a Christian worldview have to go and at least putting an application for today's society. Um, you know, we have to not be motivated strictly by financial means. Again, uh, I'm, I would say nothing against Christian doctors or lawyers. I think we need Christian doctors. I think we need Christian lawyers. But if your entire motivation to do that is financial, um, then maybe you need to reassess your whole point in life. Yeah, I think that we can learn something from the people in the land and from the way that they react to this situation. Because if you just look at the first two verses, it looks like the Israelites, the Jews are in pretty good shape so far because you've got these people coming, approaching them and saying, we also worship the same God that you do. We've been sacrificing to him since we first arrived in this land and let us join you in building this temple. And then in verse three, when the leadership of the Jews say, no, you may have no part with us in building this house. We alone will build it. It's almost like, what are you doing? You're not only working against unity, and I thought this whole religion thing was supposed to be about blessing the nations. What's going on here? But then you see that immediately they, the locals start to work against the rebuilding of the temple. And you can see that their motivation was not actually a desire to worship this God that they're serving. And that the offer that they were making to help rebuild this temple actually fits within their polytheistic worldview. You know, they probably were offering sacrifices to Yahweh, but in addition to their own gods that they had in their own culture, they see that they see Yahweh as a local God, someone who has power maybe in this land and uh, someone that they should offer sacrifices to, to appease, but not integral to their lives in the same way that he was to these Israelite people. And so when they were offering to partner themselves with the Jews, with the Israelites in this scenario, they weren't necessarily offering their help. They were trying to ingrain themselves into these newcomers so that they wouldn't be tempted to rock the boat and to bring about any significant change. It actually reminds me of a story in Genesis where 
Abraham enters into the land and people offer to give him some land and to have his children marry their children so they can mix together and become a people. And their goal was not actually the reconciliation and the unity that they were talking about. Their goal was actually to make Abraham sort of disappear and diffuse into the general society. And I think that's similar to what's going on here. And it's one of the reasons why holiness is so important to the Jewish people, because the last thing that they want is to disappear as a distinct group of people and to diffuse into a general society that doesn't honor God the way that they are called to. Yeah. And, and I think it's really good that you point out that holiness is so important because uh, often we, in a modern context, don't really understand what the word holy means. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, just like the back of the envelope definition of, of holy is literally just set apart or different. And so I do, I love that point that you bring up. That's a really good point is that the, the Jews want to be distinct. They want to be set apart. Sometimes to a fault though, for instance, in this case, do you think that they did the right thing by saying you will have no part in what we're doing? Or do you think that their response maybe gets the holiness right, but is maybe missing the missionary focus of the Abrahamic covenant? I don't know. And I, and I imagine people smarter than either of us have contemplated that question. Um, I would say personally, they made the right decision. They may have made the right decision in a wrong manner. Uh, and what I mean by that is you can be blunt with someone and still be cordial. And, you know, they're not doing it necessarily here. It ends up coming back to bite them in the butt. Now, that being said, you know, what, what would it be like that you've, you haven't got to worship your God for 70 years of exile? And then at this point, I don't know how many years they have returned to Jerusalem. It, it's been a, a little bit. Um, you know, you haven't been able to worship your God for quite some time. And these people who are not necessarily of you, that they are, or, you know, a polytheistic culture, as you pointed out, are trying to take over your worship. Uh, you, you rightly kind of want to be a little defensive. You know, to answer the question, it comes to a big, I don't know, but yeah. It does kind of show us about human nature, though, that as a as members of the church, sometimes our tendency can be to value our own sort of independence from the culture and our own distinctiveness from the culture to a point where we make ourselves an island onto ourselves, if that makes sense so that we I think American Christianity suffers from this especially where we're we're making our own movies and we only watch our movies and we make our own music and we only listen to our music and we don't even engage really with what the wider culture is doing in a way that would be helpful or meaningful to help us reach and be in real relationships with people who don't belong to our particular corner and that tendency, I think, has led to some conflict that we see in our world today and some of the polarization and forming of tribal groups. Yeah. And, and I remember the church I was a part of when I first became a Christian, we were doing a, a youth basketball league. And 
we didn't have enough numbers to keep going. And uh, the Methodist church down the road from us was also doing the youth basketball league and they didn't have enough numbers to keep going. And so we pulled together, right? And I remember there were some people uh, who were grumbling about it because, you know, we were we were Baptists and they were Methodists and they're different. And I'm like, well, what does it matter? And, and, you know, the leadership of both churches were like, what does it matter, you know? Um, you know, this is a great evangelistic effort that we're getting kids in the community that would never come in our door for a Sunday school, but might come in to play basketball, you know? And so why, why do we fight that, you know, amongst ourselves? Mm-hmm. So you, you do bring up that good point that, that we do in American Christianity have this circle to wagons mentality that we can't always have. No, those are, those are good points. Man. So uh, as we look at what this passage says about people, we move on to our next point, which is, is what does this passage say about God? And one of the things that's interesting here is this passage um, is similar to the book of uh, Esther, in my opinion. And that is um, Yahweh is not overtly mentioned. Uh, in the book of Esther, he's never overtly mentioned. Here he's overtly mentioned a couple of times, but specifically only in the temple fashion that they are building a house for Yahweh, etc., People talking um, about God, not God acting. And yeah. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people will be like, oh, well, it doesn't say much. Well, you, you kind of have to read it between the lines to see, you know, what's going on there. And so, uh, just because it's not overtly or, or, like you said, expressly God's acting, we can still see his actions through people. One thing that stands out to me is that up until this point, there has been a bit of an aura of protection over the people that we've seen from God. They were given the blessing by King Cyrus to go to the land. They were given the offerings and materials by their neighbors. They made the long journey safely and arrived and they started working. And then at this point, it seems like things are starting to fall apart. And from a certain theological perspective, you could say, well, that might be because the people stopped worshiping or they stopped doing all the right things. But I think that if you have a more grounded theology and even the things that Jesus says, where he says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Um, This is just the point in the story where Israel starts to have trouble and that doesn't necessarily mean that they had given up on their God and were relying entirely on themselves, although that's entirely possible. But here they are trying to build the temple and they start to face opposition. And the Bible never says that we won't face opposition. In fact, quite the contrary. But even though we are facing opposition and difficulty and it feels like that aura of protection or the aura of blessing is no longer there. That doesn't mean that God is no longer present. And I think that's the point that you were making right there. But throughout this book, we're going to see various things go wrong as, as we move forward. But God never actually leaves his people. And that is important for their continued survival and is a great thing for us to remember in these days what, what's interesting for me is and i've pointed this out i think every week almost but it's it's a really good point and that is uh, yahweh takes his worship seriously um and so these jews 
knew their history. They knew of the problems of the Northern and the Southern Kingdom when they had idolatrous worship or polytheism kind of invade. They knew the history of the judges where you had the cycle of apostasy. Um, and because they knew that and they knew that you could not bring, you know, you had the expression, at least I, I had a youth minister that would always say this expression, like how much dog poop would you let in your brownie? And the answer is 0%. And he's like, you know, well, what if I had just like a little, like the size of a grain of sand and I put that in your brownie, is that susceptible? And there, you know, everyone reasonably goes, well, no, that's disgusting, right? Um, in the same way as like how much idolatrous worship would you allow in the worship of Yahweh? Well, the answer is none, right? And, and so because they knew the history and they knew God had taken his worship seriously, they had decided that they would not allow, you know, people who committed idolatry to take part in it. Um, and he says, you know, you may have no part in building the house to our God, since we alone will build it for Yahweh, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Um, and so, you know, it's really important to see how God takes his worship so seriously. We see this several places in scripture, specifically when Moses is coming down from the mountains, right? Um, when he's coming down with the Ten Commandments, God gets pretty upset there. Moses eats the tablets on the ground. It's a whole rough day, right? Um, but throughout, and that's one of many places in the Old Testament narrative that we can point to. And again, I point out that these Jews knew that. Um, and so to take this worship seriously, even if that meant, you know, getting some opposition, getting some things, you know, is the true worship of God worth some worldly opposition? Um, and I love your point that, you know, God never promises us that. Um, this world would be full of trouble. In fact, he promises, or without trouble. In fact, he promises the exact opposite, that it will be full of it. And that's okay. And then next in our Discovery Bible section, we're going to talk about how this text connects to the gospel message. For me, this is a um, Saturday morning moment. And what I mean by that is when we are looking at the crucifixion narrative, Saturday morning is like the most depressing point in all of it. Imagine you're the 12, at this point, the 11 disciples. Jesus is dead. It's Saturday morning. It's over, right? And it's it's the Sabbath and you're supposed to have, you know, this, this day of, of rest. And it's supposed to be this day that people come together and celebrate their traditions and their heritage and worship Yahweh and they have a Sabbath dinner. Um, and you're not doing any of that because it is just, you know, the worst things happen to you if you're, and you're looking at it and you're thinking this is terrible, right? Uh, and what's going on here and my, my connection right here is uh, this is a Saturday morning moment. What I mean by that is we as the reader get the lovely view of Ezra chapter five and chapter six, which we'll get into the next weeks where, where things become more resolved than they are and we as the reader get to see that and it's beautiful at this point Zerubbabel doesn't get that at all Zerubbabel is like God I want to build a house to you to worship Ezra is like God I want a house for you to worship uh, for your people to be worshipped or for your people to worship you but like 
it's not happening, right? Um, and and this unfortunate Saturday morning moment, as, as I call it, you if I believe correctly, Taz, and, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, you said it's almost a period of 14 years between verses 23 and 24. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it, it's this very long moment. Um, and, you know, in the end, God will have his way and the gospel will win out. That doesn't mean that it's always going to be easy in that process. And so this is one of the rough patches before God wins out. Um, and so that's the connection to the gospel that I see. One thing that stands out to me is the description of Jerusalem in verses 12 through 16 that this is in the letter that the locals send to Artaxerxes. And they describe Jerusalem as a rebellious and evil city that is harmful to kings and provinces. There have been revolts in it since ancient times. And that if it is rebuilt and the walls are finished, um, the king would not have any possession west of the Euphrates. And one thing that stands out to me is that Honestly, this description is not wholly inaccurate because not only is this a city that was built and contained people that rebelled against the global superpowers of the day, the book of Second Kings and Second Chronicles really describe how a lot of these later Juden kings would make deals with the Assyrians or with the Babylonians and then try to go back on the deals and be rebellious. And not only were they rebellious against their allies and against people at the time, but from the beginning, it's been rebellious against God, right? And so these people are coming into this land again with a desire to worship their God, but also to reestablish the kingdom. But it's not going to happen this time. And you can already see the roots of it in the fact that their return is with permission under authority. And the fact that they are under this authority is what's causing them the issue right now, because when one king makes a decision and another king revokes that decision, then there's not much that they can do. And they're not coming as a conquering force that is able to fend for themselves. They're not coming as a force that has God fighting for them. They're coming as a force that has God preparing a way, but it's a rocky way. And their kingdom will not be established in the book of Ezra or the book of Nehemiah. The kingdom will only come in a way that is unexpected some 400 to 500 years later in the person of Jesus. And in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out his disciples to go out. He sends 72 people out to go spread his message. And he tells them to go into a town to heal the sick in it, to eat what's set before them. And then he says, the message that you are to give to them is to proclaim that the kingdom of God has come near to you. So the kingdom doesn't come until Jesus comes. And it's different than these people expected because they were expecting some sort of a political revolt or revolution to allow them to reestablish an earthly kingdom. But that's never what God had in mind because God was always looking forward to a time when the kingdom would not require such violence or revolt, but would be established through the presence of himself among his people. That is a really good point. Um, 
and that is the ultimate connection to the gospel. And I think we as as New Testament Christians often like forget the beauty that is the Old Testament narrative. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's beautiful that we've, you know, it, it's just such a crescendo as we go from Genesis all the way to, um, you know, the post-exilic period at Malachi, um, just seeing that crescendo and how it comes in the culmination of the person uh, and God that is Jesus. So beautiful, beautiful. Taz, do you have any questions that you're like, man, I really wish I know this, but we don't know it. Or maybe we can find it somewhere in history or something. Do you have any of those questions where you're like, who knows? I'm curious about what the relationship between the different kings that we see here is, because yes, was- they, they, go, they go with the permission of King Cyrus of Persia. And when they get there, they're, they're there for a few years and they start building. And then all of a sudden King Artaxerxes is the one in charge. And he obviously doesn't really have any idea what's going on here because he immediately calls off this building project without realizing that it was done with explicit royal permission in the first place. So I'd be curious to know, you know, what, what's the timeline here? What's the relationship between all those people? Yeah, that was, that was exactly mine of, you know, who in the world is our Xerxes uh, to Cyrus? And how does it look with that whole situation? And then when we get to King Darius later, which is like 14 years later, um, you know, who is he in relation to them as well? Um, and there's several King Dariuses in scripture. Um, and so I can say I did some research and this King Darius of Persia that is mentioned is not the same Darius that is mentioned in the book of Daniel. Mm. So, they're not the same, uh, at least according to history. Um, and so that's, that's what's interesting. One thing that popped into my head when I was reading the response of Artaxerxes to the local people was um, he talks about looking into the records and seeing that the city has indeed had uprisings against kings since ancient times, and there have been rebellions and revolts in it. So he's confirming what they told him. And then in verse 20, he says, powerful kings have also ruled over Jerusalem and exercised authority over the whole region west of the Euphrates. And it just reminded me of what we find in Isaiah chapter 39, and this is a story that is also found in a couple of other places, but in Isaiah chapter 39, the subheading that I have is Hezekiah's folly. And so Hezekiah was one of the good kings of Judah who trusted in God and had enough faith that when he got sick, he prayed to God that he would be healed. Isaiah, the prophet, went to tell him, sorry, you're going to die. And Hezekiah threw himself prostrate before the Lord and prayed and prayed. And before Isaiah had a chance to leave the building, God came to him and said, go back and tell him that he'll live for another couple of years. Well, after that event, some people from a far off kingdom called Babylon came to visit Hezekiah. And in Isaiah 39, starting in verse one, it says, at that time, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a gift to Hezekiah, since he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. 
Hezekiah was pleased with the letters and he showed his envoys his treasure house, the gold, the silver, the spices, the precious oil, and all his armory, and everything that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his palace and in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. And then Isaiah comes to Hezekiah and says, who are those guys? What did you show them? And Hezekiah says, oh, they're from Babylon. It's really far away. I showed them everything. And Isaiah tells him, what you've just done is going to lead to great trials, tribulation, and destruction for your people. And Hezekiah says, well, this won't happen while I'm alive. And that's the end of that story. But I just, when I read this in Ezra 4, verse 20, it says, powerful kings have also ruled over Jerusalem. And I imagine that perhaps this Merodach Baladan sent envoys and those envoys came back with a report and the report was written down and that's the same record that we're reading here that Artaxerxes uses as justification to prevent Jerusalem from being rebuilt. So Hezekiah's curse is still giving. That's a good connection. I, you know, it, it, and it's interesting because I didn't even think to make that connection. You know, you're kind of aware of both stories, but you don't always make those connections. So like that's, that's a little good little morsel golden nugget to take from here uh, and our last and most important question as we talk about how do we as new testament christians apply this passage to our lives in today's context again we've said it a hundred times uh, you know the bible is something that is meant to be read to change your life not necessarily something that's meant to be read like a storybook and so i always always encourage people when you go to scripture always look for a way to apply it to your life for me most of this passage is people who don't follow God accusing people who do follow God of things that is not their goal to do, right? I don't think that really the goal of these people is to prevent King Artaxerxes from getting revenue in his treasury. But that's the accusation that's being made against them by people who don't like the way that they worship their God. And mm. As Christians in today's culture, we are going to face accusations of hatred and bigotry and other things that stem from the way that we worship God, the way that we see what the Bible says about human nature. And the response can't be to get back on that level and circle the wagons and be confrontational about it. But the thing that we have to do is prove them wrong. I'm reminded of first Peter chapter three, verse 15, where it says in your hearts, regard Christ, the Lord is holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And this is the key part. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. And what that's saying is not to prove them right, but to prove them wrong. And so in the same way that these Israelites were being accused of rebellion by doing just what they were told that they could do by King Cyrus, we as Christians should, when we are accused of hatred, instead demonstrate Christ's love, even to those who are disparaging our good conduct so that that disparagement will be put to shame, not the people themselves. And, and going off that tangential to it, but in the same vein, um, how are we as Christians to respond to government? And this is always a tricky one. <laughs> this is always one where it's like, ah, do I really want to preach Romans 13? 
uh, or ah, do I really want to talk about that? Um, and I think if you look at scripture as a whole, uh, and you look at specifically in the New Testament, um, in the words of Jesus and the words of the Holy Spirit written through Peter, um, we as Christians are to be subject to our government. Um, and so if, you know, the government comes down with a command um, and it is not expressly commanding us to sin, I think we as Christians are to follow it. And I think there's ample scriptural evidence to back that up. And we can see here that, you know, what doesn't happen in the Ezra narrative is that they riot and they get upset and they, they throw things around and they destroy and they, you know, try to mess up, you know, Artaxerxes' plans or, you know, they mess him up in this way or that way. None of that takes place, right? It, it's none of this is a, okay, we didn't get our way. We're just going to start smashing stuff. Um, because that's not how we as Christians are called to respond to things. Um, we are to be subject to government. And, you know, people are like, man, are you, are you sure about that? Like, you know, you don't know who Jesus wasn't talking about, you know, this ex-politician or that ex-politician, because, you know, they didn't know they're really bad guys. I'm sitting there like, you know, Jesus was straight up talking about one of the, when he says, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, like, he was talking about a pretty messed up dude. Uh, the Caesar at that time did pretty awful things. Um, historians, you can you can look it up. We're not going to get into it. But it's pretty bad. Um, Peter literally was like, hey, you should be subject to Nero. And the Christians were like, Nero's hunting us down and killing us. And he's like, cool, did I stutter? Uh, <laughs> you know, and so we as Christians, and, and you know, it's really rough uh, because when your person's in office, it seems really, really easy to be subject to the government. And when your person's not in office, that changes like on a dime. Um, and, you know, I'm, we're not going to talk about which candidate X, Y, or Z that we're, you know, dealing with. I, I don't think this needs to be any specific, but I do think that we as Christians, no matter who is in government, unless they are expressly commanding you to sin, you are to be subject to them. And I think scripture backs us up. So going off of that, are you suggesting that when in the verse, in the space between verse 23 and 24, when the Jews stopped building the temple for 14 years, do you think that they were correct in doing so? I would say yes. I don't see anywhere in this narrative where worship stopped. Uh, and I don't think worship stopped for a period of 14 years especially with how gung-ho they have been for the entirety of the book of Ezra. Mm. Um, I don't think worship stopped. I do think construction stopped, but, you know, they started worship when they just had a foundation. Doesn't mean they can't worship. It just means construction can't go on. So, yeah, I would say that they are correct in doing it because they were ordered to do so. That's interesting. Well, we're going to end on a bit of a cliffhanger here as far as the story goes. Join us in two weeks when we discuss chapter five of the book of Ezra, and we will see what the ultimate response of the Jews is to this current situation, and we'll check out that Darius guy that you're talking about and see what his response is as well. 
I will say to our most ardent listeners, this isn't a cliffhanger because you listened to the entirety of the book of Ezra read by our own Tasman Turner. So if you haven't heard that podcast, go ahead and check it out. It takes about, what would you say, Taz, 30 minutes? Yeah, about 34. About about 34 minutes to listen to the entirety of the book uh, without demarcation for verse or chapter or heading. So that's always a good listen. And as always, catch the podcast again next week for another episode of Middle Ground. I will be out of town for a personal matter, but you'll be excited to see the surprise guest that Sam has lined up. And I'm looking forward to being able to enjoy the podcast for the first time on my way back. Hey, Tads. Hey, Sam. Have you ever like been upset with a decision your parents made or like, you know, maybe you felt like they were giving you too harsh a punishment or something like that? That's probably happened once or twice. Yeah. Well, um, have you ever thought, you know what, this will be a rational response. I'll just kill them. Frankly, no. (laughs) Oh, good. I was really hoping you wouldn't say no. Uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 21 says, Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. Wow, put that on a coffee mug. Who said that? Uh, Jesus, Matthew chapter 10. Verses out of context are great. I'm Taz. I'm Sam. (laughs) I was trying to surprise you, but you beat me to the surprise, didn't you? I think I have most of the names in mine. Yeah. I want to save you from the names. <laughs> part of me wants to get indignant and say, how dare you? But part of me wants to not have to read the names. So I don't, you know, I'll, I'll take it. You know? you know, you know, you don't know who, you know, you know. Let's restart that because that was kind of meandering. <laughs> I'll divide father from mother and they'll all kill each other or something. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want, but I will find you and I will share the gospel with you.